Last time we spoke about the incredibly chaotic Battle of Coral Sea, which resulted in a tactical victory for Japan, and a strategic victory for America. Then we brought the Philippines campaign to a close as General Homa took Mindanao and The Rock, that being Corregidor. Then we spoke about the horrible situation in Burma, where the super friends of Britain, China, and the Americans efficiently coordinated their efforts to repel the Japanese advance. No, it actually was the complete opposite, and all the allies had to make an insane effort to flee from Burma, which they did manage to do. Yet today, we are actually going to go back to mainland China, back to the China War, and we are going to talk about the harrowing experience felt by the Chinese after the Doolittle Raid. This episode is Operation Sago. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can begin, I just wanted to remind you, this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more. So go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, if after all that you are still hungry for some Chinese history content, why don't you check my personal channel out, the Pacific War channel over at YouTube, where I have episodes dedicated to the Opium Wars of the 1800s, China during World War I, and the Xinhai Revolution. Check it out, it'll mean a lot to me. Before we begin, after writing the entire script, I just kind of want to give a disclaimer here. This episode is going to feature some very, well, graphic, I guess for the ears anyways, material. In particular, I'm going to be speaking about Unit 731. So for those of you who know, well, you know. You know what's going to happen. That being said, I will leave all of that kind of more gruesome stuff to the end half of the podcast. The first part is a run-of-the-mill kind of what goes on during the battles story, and then the end uh, becomes literally nightmare fuel. So, you've been warned, and I will uh, warn you again when it comes up later on in the script. It's been almost six months since Japan began the war with the West. They have achieved victory after victory, and they seem to be unstoppable across the Pacific. Yet for those of us living in the West, we often forget this war actually started in 1937, some would argue, actually, 1931. China is one of the most forgotten allies of World War II. And ironically, one of the main sources for this podcast is the book Forgotten Ally, China's World War II, 1937-1945 by Rana Mita. I highly recommend this book, and other works by Rana Mita, by the way. Thus, today we are going to venture back to the Second Sino-Japanese War Front, and this episode will be a bit different from most. While we usually constrict things to a week-by-week -week basis, it's incredibly hard to compact so much into these weeks. So this episode will be encompassing a longer time, around a few months worth, in what is called by the Japanese Operation Seigo, but is also known as the Zhejiang Tiangxi Campaign. Since the Second Sino-Japanese War broke out in 1937, the Chinese defenders had proved themselves to be resilient and a fierce foe. Despite operation after operation, Japan only found herself being engulfed in a hole. A hole that eventually led it to commence a war with the West in an attempt to get out of that said hole. There is some real dark humor to be had with the situation Japan got itself into when you really peel back the layers. As described by many historians, when Japan dug its claws into Manchuria in 1931, it basically got addicted to a drug. That drug was expansionism. Every time Japan had some internal problems, like let's say overpopulation or lack of resources, they sought external solutions. For example, the taking of Manchuria solved what I had just mentioned, a booming population in Japan which required food, 
and Manchuria. Well, it's the breadbasket of Asia. Not to mention Manchuria was also a giant territory to send Japanese immigrants. But when Japan took Manchuria, partly to create a buffer state against the Soviets, well, now they were side by side with the USSR. Thus, Japan began to escalate things. And you see this with the border skirmishes, like the Battle of Kalkingol and Lake Bacal, where they got a really, really bloody nose for their efforts. While this stopped Japan from performing Hokushinan, the Great Northern Strike Doctrine against the USSR, it did not dissuade them from encroaching more so into China. Once Japan began its war with China, it found itself occupying vast parts of its northern and eastern territories. This led Japan to sink in around 35 of its 50-something divisions for the entire war. Much like in the old days, because I'm, I'm a little bit older than most of you, I imagine, Western nations really tended to downplay the Eastern Front of World War II in Europe. Likewise, the Japan-China War was the lion's share of warfare for the Pacific War. Now, to go back to where we had left off, the Burma Campaign brought an entirely new theater of operations for China. Yet, as the Burma Campaign was raging, another major event occurred which brought absolute horror to China. The Doolittle Raid was a spectacular propaganda coup for the American war effort. The Japanese were stunned by it. How the hell did the Americans pull this off? One Japanese commentator speculated that the United States had developed a supercarrier with a quarter-mile flight deck. Others thought the aircraft came from the Aleutian Islands, or even some secret pocket in the Philippines. However, the Japanese military leaders soon reconstructed what had happened. Signal Corps photographers developed and studied during the afternoon when the raid had taken part on April 18th, and they confirmed that the bombers had been B-25s. By midnight of the same day, the IGA in China reported crash landings in Zhejiang and Jiangxi provinces. The first American pilots to be captured were interrogated, and they gave false answers claiming that they had flown in from the Aleutian Islands or the mythological supercarrier. Admiral Ukaki wrote on April 19th, They never told the truth. We must investigate further, promptly, so that we can take proper measure for the future. Two days later, he wrote, American war prisoners captured at Nanchang have been sent to Nanking, where they told the truth at last. Then on April the 22nd, he wrote, More truth has been added to the statements of the POWs. And I'll let you guess how they were getting this truth out of them. Thus, the Japanese learned that the Doolittle Raids, B-25s, had been launched from the deck of the USS Horton. The American pilots were supposed to land at airfields in the nationalist-held parts of Zhejiang, but none of them would end up doing so. They all crash-landed at various points in eastern China, with one taking a huge detour and landing at Vladivostok. Around eight Americans crash-landed in the Japanese-occupied territory in Zhangxi, and they would be sentenced under the military regulations of the theater commander to be executed, because, quote, because of their act against humanity. The eight men were brought to Tokyo, where their cases were referred to the army ministry. Hideki Tojo opposed death sentences for the American prisoners, fearing American retaliation against Japanese living in the United States. Ajime Sugiyama and the entire army general staff, however, insisted on executing all eight, so as to teach the Americans an object lesson, and thereby decrease the likelihood of further air attacks. Emperor Hirohito, however, chose to intervene and commuted the punishment of five out of the eight men. Why he allowed the others to die in violation of international law cannot be answered, because all records pertaining to the POWs were destroyed by the end of the war. Perhaps Emperor Hirohito wished to demonstrate his benevolence. It has been quite a while since I've talked about Hirohito, by the way. But rest assured, he had always been there, in the background, 
looking carefully over operations. For example, Hirohito kept closely in touch with operations in Burma and China, for he believed these would be the main battlefronts. On at least three occasions during 1942, on February the 9th, March the 19th, and May the 29th, Hirohito pressed Sugiyama to examine the possibilities for an eventual attack on Chongqing, which should be pronounced Chongqing, but all the old books always call it Chongqing. Can't you figure some way, somehow, to put an end to the China incident? Well, the Imperial General Headquarters contemplated future raids on the homeland from air bases and carriers in the Pacific, as well as from bases on continental China. They had thought the enemy would use the Zhejiang area to land or launch more aircraft to hit the Japanese home islands. Thus, Operation Sego was formed. This was an order for the China Expeditionary Army to cease its operations in the Kwangku area and direct its efforts towards the destruction of enemy air bases in the Zhejiang area. Part of the operation was also to hunt down the other American bombers. It took upon itself a vengeful purpose to punish those who aided them. Back in early April, the Chinese 23rd and 32nd Army groups had managed to infiltrate the Xuancheng, Guanda area, after pushing out the 13th Army of Lieutenant General Sawada Shigeru. The IGA response was to perform a pincer movement against Changxing and Xiancheng. But when the orders for Operation Sego came in, they had to change their plans. The main objectives of Sego were to destroy the airfields at Lishui, Chizhou, in the Yushan area, and the city of Shangyao which was the HQ of the Third War Area of General Gu Zhutong. The Imperial General Headquarters plan called for an estimated 40 infantry battalions to be employed by Lieutenant General Sawada, but he would actually use 53. Meanwhile, the 11th Army of General Korechika Anami routed the Chinese 120th Division at Mianyang on May the 5th and begun launching a diversionary attack into the Yueyang area, where it would clash with the western flank of General Gu. This collapsed the Chinese power in Jiangxi and hindered any reinforcements for the Chinese in the area. The 1st Air Brigade was also ordered to destroy the enemy airfields and their aircraft, so the IGA could rely upon some pretty heavy air support. The 1st Air Brigade would hit Chuchao, as it's written in pretty much all the books that I read on the subject matter, yet the city is actually named today Xiaozhou. Xiaozhou was Doolittle's intended destination. A missionary from the United Church of Canada, Reverend Bill Mitchell, traveled in the region and organized aid on behalf of the Church Committee on the China Relief. He gathered statistics from local governments to provide a snapshot of the harrowing destruction. Xiaozhou would have 1,131 raids, killing 10,246 people, leaving another 27,456 in destitute, destroying 62,146 homes. They stole 7,620 heads of cattle and burned 30% of the crops in the area. One of the American pilots who made it to Xiaozhou, Ken Reddy, wrote in his diary after witnessing the bombing of the city, We called our home the Chuchao Bombing Range, for that is all it amounted to, practice for the Japanese. It's a crime, no sign of opposition, just one airplane would be all that we need. Too bad one of us couldn't have landed. Frequently, bodies were stacked like cordwood along the roadside until they could be taken away for burial. It was a depressing sight to us. We hadn't encountered anything like this before. By May 13, Lieutenant General Sawada concentrated his forces in the Yuhang Ganghua Line. Two days later, the IGA decided to commence their initial offensive, advancing to destroy the Chinese fortified positions at Yiwu, Paitoujen, and Changlujen, while the 116th Division advanced along the Fuchuan River, with the 32nd Division following closely behind them, 
On May the 18th, the first clash with the Chinese forces occurred as the IGA 22nd Division assaulted the fortified positions of the new 9th Army just due east of Changlujian. The defenders tried to repel the Japanese advance, but the next day, the 70th Division and the Kono Mixed Brigade arrived to the scene, smashing into the 9th Army's flanks, forcing them to retreat. At the same time, the IGA 15th Division attacked another detachment of the 9th Army at Paitojen, leaving an opening towards Yiwu. The IGA began to attack the city, and by May the 22nd, they had consolidated their control over the sector east of Xinhua. Sawada then decided to shift his focus towards the right flank of the enemy, the area south of Tiende. After taking Paitojen, the 116th, 32nd, and the 15th divisions turned west towards Yanxi, and by nighttime, the 34th were ready to attack it, just as other units were reaching the front of Xinhua. The Chinese defenders were retreating without the intent to make much resistance, so the Japanese began to push harder on their heels. Gu Jutong's plan to slow the Japanese advance was to draw the invaders into Chuzhou, where they could be encircled and annihilated in a decisive battle. As had been seen for years with the Chinese defense in-depth strategy, the best way to hit the Japanese was to force them to elongate their logistics. The more you drew them into an interior area, the less effective the Japanese would become, especially if you managed to get them outside the range of their aircraft. However, you of course always run the risk that using such strategies might simply hand territory over to the enemy. And Sawada's forces were advancing too fast and with too much strength that the Chinese defenders hardly got a chance to organize defensive lines. By the end of May, the Japanese took Yanxi and Xinhua. The IGA 70th Division was responsible for the security of the sectors along the Zhejiang-Jiangxi Railway east of Longyou and Xinhua while the Harada Mixed Brigade was responsible for the security of the Fuxuan River area. By June the 3rd, four divisions and the Kono Mixed Brigade were in front of Chuzhou, ready to launch an offensive. By May the 27th, the 11th Army had also concentrated behind the Ganjiang River. They then moved to the Wugui Mountain area in preparation for the new offensive, and by dusk of May the 31st, Anami ordered his forces to ford the Fuhe River. There they clashed with the 100th Army, forcing them to retreat to a defensive position in Xinxian. Upon seeing the looming threat, General Xue Yue of the 9th War Area sent a force along the Gangjiang River to thwart the Japanese advance and give some relief to the other defenders. But by June the 3rd, the Japanese had already overwhelmed the defenders at Xinxian and were pushing as far as Yunshanjian. Anami now sent the Iwanada Detachment along the Zhejiang Jiangxi Railway and the 34th Division to support the Takahara Detachment, who were now engaging with the Chinese 79th Army near Changpingxiang. On June the 4th, the Japanese were engaging the 79th Army at Yinchuan, where they managed to rout the enemy and capture the city shortly after. Simultaneously, the Imai and Aida detachments engaged rear elements of the 79th Army just due west, tying them down long enough for the 34th Division and the Takahara detachment to show up and completely annihilate the defenders. The escape routes for the 79th were severed, leaving them at the mercy of Anami's forces. Meanwhile, further east, Sawada prepared to hit the Chinese position at Chuzhou from both sides of the town. Despite having very strong fortifications, the defenders were rapidly overwhelmed and the town was encircled. Then, just as the Japanese were about to make a decisive victory, destroying the Chinese presence in the entire region, a heavy downpour of rain began during the night of June the 4th. The entire area swelled up from the surrounding rivers and it looked to the Japanese that Chinese reinforcements from the south and southwest were approaching. This caused a lull in the battle, allowing the defenders to break out of the encirclement and escape southwards. 
So Ada left the Kono Mixed Brigade and the 116th Division to guard Chizhou, while sending the bulk of his forces to chase the fleeing enemy towards the town of Guangfeng. The flood hampered the pursuers, but the IJ 32nd Division managed to seize Yishan and its airfield by June the 12th, while two other divisions captured Guangfeng by June the 14th. The 22nd Division then seized Shanrao the next day. With Chuzhou and Yushan under his thumb, Sawada now ordered the Kozonoe Mixed Brigade to capture the last of their objectives, Li Shui, which held a key airfield. By June the 22nd, the Kozonoe Mixed Brigade advanced towards Li Shui. The Chinese presence in the region collapsed. Thus, Li Shui was seized without any real opposition. The Japanese, however, were not done and Anami was preparing a death blow against the 79th Army between Lin Chuan and Zhongren, forming another encirclement. The 79th Army was hammered into a rout by June the 8th, and they were fleeing towards the town of Nancheng, being chased by the 3rd Division and the Takahara Detachment. By June the 11th, the last remnants of the 79th Army were engaged near Nancheng, where they were completely annihilated. Nanchong's airfield was seized the following day. By June the 15th, Tsingxi fell to the 3rd Division, and now Anami was in firm control of the whole region south of the Jinshan Lake. Concurrently, the 34th Division was ordered to support the Awanada Detachment as it was marching across the Jijiang Jiangxi Railway. By June the 10th, the Iwanada detachment reached as far as the Baita River, but their advance was halted by the presence of the 100th Army at Yingtang. By June the 15th, the 34th Division showed up to the scene, and alongside the Iwanada detachment, they sent the 100th Army fleeing for their lives. From there, the 34th Division occupied Guiqi, while the Iwanada detachment continued on east. On June the 30th, Sawada sent the Yazu Detachment to meet up with the Iwanada Detachment, where they eliminated the remnants of the fleeing 100th Army at Hongfeng. This victory brought an end to the entire offensive, but the Japanese occupation of all the conquered territories would continue for months. I am also only now realizing I probably should have said at the beginning of the episode to get your map of China out, because this must have been pretty grueling for a lot of you from the West. I know it was for me, although I've had quite a lot of practice learning the geography of China by this point. With the primary objectives of Operation Seiko complete, that being the reduction of the Chinese air power capabilities, now the IGA would begin its hunt for the American pilots. The generosity shown by the Chinese triggered a horrific retaliation by the Japanese that claimed an estimated quarter of a million lives and would prompt comparisons to the rape of Nanking, even allowing for this number to be exaggerated somewhat. That is double the number of U.S. military deaths suffered during the entire Pacific War. Details of what would occur would be recorded a lot by American missionaries. These missionaries knew of the potential wrath of the Japanese, having lived under their tenuous peace in the border regions just south of Japanese-occupied China. Many had heard the stories of the atrocities at Nanking, and many would see similar events unfold here. Herbert Vandenberg, an American priest, recalled, The first thing you see is a group of cavalrymen. The horses have on shiny black boots. The men wear boots and a helmet. They are carrying sub-machine guns. Vandenberg had heard the news broadcasts about the Doolittle Raid in the mission compound in the town of Linchuan, where around 50,000 people lived. It also held the largest Catholic church in southern China, with a capacity to serve many thousand. Days after the raid, letters reached Vandenberg from nearby missions in Poyang and Iwang, informing him that local priests cared for a few of the American pilots. Vandenberg wrote, they came to us on foot. They were tired and hungry. 
Their clothing was tattered and torn from climbing down the mountains after bailing out. We gave them fried chicken. We dressed their wounds and washed their clothes. The nuns baked cakes for the flyers. We gave them our beds. By early June, the horror had begun. Father Wendelin Dunkar observed Japanese attacks in the town of Iwang. They shot any man, woman, child, cow, hog, or just about anything that moved. They raped any woman from the ages of 10 to 65, and before burning the town, they thoroughly looted it. None of the humans shot were buried either, but were left to lay on the ground to rot, along with the hogs and cows. One specific city that would be hit very hard was Nanchung. The Japanese marched into the walled city at dawn on the morning of June the 11th, and the reign of horror there was so bad that the missionaries would dub it the Rape of Nanchung. Soldiers rounded up 800 women and herded them into a storehouse outside the East Gate. Reverend Frederick McGuire stated, For one month, the Japanese remained in Nanchung, roaming the rubble-filled streets in loincloths, much of the time drunk a good part of the time, and always on the lookout for women. The women and children who did not escape from Nanchung will long remember the Japanese. The women and girls because they were raped time after time by Japan's imperial troops and are now ravaged by venereal disease. The children because they mourn their fathers who were slain in cold blood for the sake of the new order in East Asia. The IGA systematically destroyed the walled city of 50,000 residents. Groups stripped Nanchung of all radios, while others looted the hospitals of drugs and surgical instruments. Japanese engineers wrecked electrical plants, railroad lines, factories, and shipped all the iron out. A special incendiary squad started an operation in July the 7th in the city's southern section. A local Chinese newspaper reported, This planned burning was carried on for three days, and the city of Nanchung became charred earth. Over the course of the summer, the Japanese laid waste to some 20,000 square miles. They looted towns and villages. They stole honey and scattered beehives. Soldiers devoured drove away or simply slaughtered thousands of farm animals and wrecked vital irrigation systems before setting crops on fire. Bridges, roads, and airfields were destroyed. Father Wendelin Dunka said, Like a swarm of locusts, they left behind nothing but destruction and chaos. Those discovered to have helped any American pilots were tortured. In Nanchung, the IGA forces took groups of Chinese men who had fed American pilots and forced them to eat feces before lining 10 of them up for a bullet contest. This contest was to see how many people a single bullet would pass through before it stopped. For those of you who know your history of the Einsatzgruppe, the death squads of the Schutzstaffel, well, this was performed by them as well. They would take people up lie them on their backs, with their heads lined up. They'd fire a single bullet through the heads as a means of saving ammunition. In Iwang, Ma Unling, who had helped welcome an injured American pilot named Harold Watson into his home, was wrapped in a blanket, tied to a chair, soaked in kerosene, and the IJ forces made his wife light him on fire. Reverend Charles Muse wrote, Little did the Doolittle men realize that those same little gifts which they gave their rescuers in grateful acknowledgement of their hospitality, parachutes, gloves, nickels, dimes, cigarette packages, would, a few weeks later, become the telltale evidence of their presence and lead to the torture and death of their friends. A committee reported 
Out of 28 market towns in the region, only three escaped devastation. The city of Yushan, with its population of 70,000, would see 80% of their homes destroyed and 2,000 people killed. Father Bill Stein wrote, Yushan was once a large town filled with better-than-average houses. Now you can walk through street after street, seeing nothing but ruins. In some places, you can go several miles without seeing a house that was not burnt down. Now, as horrible as everything I have said up to this point has been, I feel I should have a disclaimer going forward. I won't be talking too much in depth about the group I will be talking about shortly, because there's actually going to be a special episode on them, believe it or not, on the Kings and Generals YouTube channel. But please be warned for those faint of heart when it comes to mutilation, torture, and just pure nightmare fuel, we are going to be talking about Unit 731. Japan had saved the worst for last, summoning the secretive Unit 731, a clandestine outfit led by Major General Shiro Ishii, a 50-year-old doctor and army surgeon who specialized in bacteriology and serology. Flamboyant and outgoing, Ishii had once developed a field water filtration system, demonstrating its effectiveness by urinating in it and then drinking the output. Ishii was one of Japan's earliest proponents of bacteriological warfare. The operation that had once begun almost a decade earlier in the old soy sauce distillery in Manchuria had since grown into a personal bacteriological operation, occupying a three-square-mile campus near the town of Pingfang. Shielded from prying eyes behind towering walls and electrical fences, there was 3,000 scientists, doctors, technicians, who all worked in a secret compound that held its own powerhouse, railway access, and airfield. To disguise the true nature of the unit, the Japanese publicly labeled it an Epidemic Prevention and Water Supply Unit of the Kwangtung Army. Unit 731 focused on such diseases as anthrax, glanders, dysentery, typhoid, plague, and cholera, determining which ones would be best suited for bacteriological warfare. At full capacity, Ishii's death factory could crank out each month more than 650 pounds of plague bacteria, 1,500 pounds of anthrax germs, 2,000 pounds of typhoid, and 2,200 pounds of cholera. To test all of this, Ishii's researchers experimented on, as you can probably guess, people. Anyone from bandits, communists, spies, and so on would be brought in. The Japanese would often kidnap subjects and place them in special holding cells under the consulate at Harbin, whereupon they would be later transported to the unit HQ at night in vans. At Pingfan, Ishii's older brother Takeo ran a secret two-story prison where 600 men and women would pass each year. As a souvenir, the Japanese kept one Russian subject pickled in a six-foot jar. As one of the unit's senior leaders recalled, No one ever left this death factory alive. Experiments ran the gamut from pressure chambers to frostbite to injecting people with horse blood, but the majority of the focus was on bacteriological warfare. Researchers fed prisoners cantaloupes injected with typhoid, or gave them chocolates laced with anthrax. There was even plague-filled cookies, believe it or not. Prisoners could be staked down with bacteria bombs set off near them. In one of the more horrific practices, pathologists autopsied living people without anesthetics, which the doctors feared might affect the organs and blood vessels. A former medical assistant later recounted the autopsy of a Chinese prisoner infected with plague. The fellow knew that it was over for him, 
And so he didn't struggle when they led him into the room and tied him down. But when I picked up the scalpel, that's when he began screaming. I cut him open from the chest to the stomach, and he screamed terribly. And his face was all twisted in agony. He made this unimaginable sound. He was screaming so horribly. But then he finally stopped. Another horrifying test was the frostbite experiments. Army engineer Hisato Yoshimura conducted these types of experiments by taking prisoners outside, dipping various appendages into water of varying temperatures, and allowing the limbs to freeze. Once frozen, Yoshimura would strike their affected limbs with a short stick, and in his words, they would emit a sound resembling that which a board gives when it is struck. Ice was then chipped away, with the affected area being subjected to various treatments, such as being doused in water, exposed to heat, and so on. Now, I feel I just gotta mention this. I said that Kings and Generals will have an episode specially dedicated to Unit 731, and one of our best animators... Like, he's, in, he's incredible. He found actual footage of what I just mentioned. One of the frostbite experiments. And it is the thing of nightmares, I'm telling you. It obviously will not be in the episode, as it cannot be shown on YouTube. But, yeah, it's uh, to actually see it was horrifying. And I was trying to think to myself how to really describe it to the general audiences. And, well, I happen to watch... Uh, the series Snowpiercer, as well as the original movie, which was very good, uh, the original Snowpiercer movie. And if you've seen the series, well, it looks exactly like what they do in it. The arm is completely frozen into an ice block and then smashed with a hammer. That's basically what it looked like. Anyways, back on to the horror show. Members of Unit 731 refer to Yoshimura as a scientific devil, or a cold-blooded animal because he would conduct his work with rigid strictness. Naoji Uzono, another member of Unit 731, described in a 1980s interview a disgusting scene where Yoshimura had, quote, two naked men put in an area 40 to 50 degrees below zero, and researchers filmed the whole process until the subjects died. The subjects suffered such agony, they were digging their nails into each other's flesh. Yoshimura's lack of any remorse was evident in an article he would write later on for the Journal of Japanese Physiology in 1950. Yes, you heard that right, he gets away after. It's kind of the same deal as Operation Paperclip with the Nazi researchers. In the article, he admitted to using 20 children and three-day-year-old infants in experiments which exposed them to zero degrees Celsius, ice and salt water. The article drew criticism, and, well, no shit. But Yoshimura denied any guilt when contacted by a reporter from the Manichi Shimbun. Yoshimura developed a resistance index of frostbite, based on the mean temperature of 5 to 30 minutes after immersion in freezing water, the temperature of the first rise after immersion, and then the time until the temperature first rises after immersion. In a number of separate experiments, he determined how these parameters depended on the time of day a victim's body part was immersed in freezing water, the surrounding temperature, and the humidity during immersion, how the victim had been treated before the immersion. For example, were they kept awake at night? Were they hungry after 24 hours of not eating? After 48 hours of not eating? Or immediately after a heavy meal? Immediately after a hot meal? Immediately after some exercise? Immediately after a cold bath? Immediately after a hot bath? What type of food was the victim fed over the previous five days preceding the immersions? With regard to other dietary nutrition intake... Was it high protein of animal nature, high protein of vegetable nature, low protein intake? 
Was it of the standard diet? And what was their salt intake? This man was a very rigid researcher. Members of Unit 731 also worked with syphilis, where they orchestrated forced sex acts between infected and non-infected prisoners to transmit the disease. One testimony given by a prisoner guard was, quote, Infection of venereal disease by injection was abandoned, and the researchers started forcing the prisoners into sexual acts with each other. Four or five unit members dressed in white laboratory clothing, completely covering the body with only the eyes and mouth visible, rest covered, handled the tests. A male and female, one infected with syphilis, would be brought together in a cell and forced into sex with each other. It was made clear that anyone resisting would be shot. After victims were infected, they would be vivisected at differing stages of infection so that the internal and external organs could be observed as the disease progressed. Testimony from multiple guards blamed the female victims as being hosts of the diseases, even as they were forcibly injected. Genitals of female prisoners were infected with syphilis, and some of the guards would call them jam-filled buns. Even some children were born or grew up in the walls of Unit 731, infected with syphilis. One researcher recalled, One was a Chinese woman holding an infant. One was a white Russian woman with a daughter of four or five years of age. And the last was a white Russian woman with a boy of about six or seven. The children of these women were tested in similar ways as the adults. There was, of course, rape and forced pregnancies, as you can imagine. Female prisoners were forced to become pregnant for the use in experiments. The hypothetical possibility of transmission from mother to child of diseases, particularly syphilis, was the rationale for these experiments fetal survival, and damage to the woman's reproductive organs were objects of interest. A large number of babies were born in captivity, and there have been no accounts of any survivor of Unit 731, children included. It is suspected that the children of the female prisoners were killed after birth or aborted. One guard gave a testimony. One of the former researchers I located told me that one day he had a human experiment scheduled, but there was still time to kill. So he and another unit member took the keys to the cells and opened one that housed a Chinese woman. One of the unit members raped her. The other member took the keys and opened another cell. There was a Chinese woman in there who had been used in a frostbite experiment. She had several fingers missing and her bones were black, with gangrene set in. He was about to rape her anyways. Then he saw that her sex organs were festering, with pus oozing to the surface. He gave up the idea, left and locked the door, then later went on his experimental work. The researchers struggled to devise the best delivery mechanism for a bacteriological attack. Strong air pressure and high temperatures generated by bombs killed many germs, making it very difficult. During his travels before the war in Europe, Ishii had developed a fascination with the plague, which was spread via fleas. The plague still occurred sporadically in Asia, and Ishii knew employing it could be a great disguise for a biological attack on the enemy. Researchers set out to breed fleas in some 4,500 nurseries that allowed the parasites to feast on rodents, churning out as many as 145 million fleas every three to four months. Ishii tested it out in the summer of 1940 around Zhejiang province at the port of Ningpo, where he dropped some 15 million plague-infested fleas from a low-flying airplane. 
Of the 99 people ultimately infected, all but one died. Ishii was thrilled and released a documentary film on the operation. The Doolittle Raid provided Ishii with a, another opportunity to target Zhejiang and the surrounding provinces. The plan was to target the areas around Yushan, Qianwei, and Fuxin to coincide with the withdrawal of IJ forces. In what was known as land bacterial sabotage, troops would contaminate wells, rivers, and fields to sicken villagers as well as Chinese soldiers who would no doubt be reoccupying the territories once the IJ withdrew. For the operation, Ishii ordered plague, anthrax, cholera, typhoid, and paratyphoid to be spread via spray, fleas, and water contamination. Over 300 pounds of paratyphoid and anthrax germs was ordered for the operation. In late June and early July of 1942, 120 officers and civilian employees left Pingfan for Nanking by rail and air. The mission had to be pushed back into August because of the IGA's slow progress. Technicians filled peptone bottles with bacteria, packing them in boxes labeled water supply, and they flew them to Nanking. Once in Nanking, the workers transferred the bacteria to metal flasks like canteens, and troops tossed them into wells, marshes, and homes. The Japanese also prepared 3,000 rolls contaminated with typhoid and paratyphoid. Guards handed the rolls out to hungry Chinese POWs, who were then released to go home and spread the disease. Soldiers likewise left 400 biscuits infected with typhoid near fences, under trees and other areas for hungry locals to find and eat them. The region's devastation made it difficult to tally who got sick, since the IGA had looted and burned many hospitals and clinics cutting off anyone from any means of treatment. The thousands of rotting hogs, cows, and humans that clogged wells and littered everywhere contaminated the drinking water and increased the risk of disease as well. Furthermore, the impoverished region, where villagers often defecated in holes outdoors, had been prone to epidemics before the invasion. A Chinese journalist named Yang Kang traveled the region for the Taokung Pao newspaper, and he reported after visiting Bipo in late July, quote, Those who returned to the village after the enemy had evacuated fell sick, with no one spared. This was a situation which took place not only in Bipo, but elsewhere. Yang Kang met a woman in the town and he said this of her. She herself was sick. Her daughter was having malaria, her elder grandson was having dysentery, and the younger one's face was pallid and swollen. Yang Kang asked a child on the street what was wrong with him, and the child reported, Belly ache, bellies seems burning. Yang Kang described the child as this, his eyes and nose were swollen, and they seemed to have disappeared altogether. He was about 11 years old, and there are bigger and smaller ones as sick as he all along the road. The three-month campaign of terror across Zhejiang and Jiangxi provinces infuriated many in the Chinese military because they knew the common people were being raped, murdered, and poisoned as a consequence of America's raid, one that was designed to lift the spirits of people thousands of miles away in America. Chiang Kai-shek cabled the horrors to Washington. After they have been caught unawares by the falling of American bombs on Tokyo, Japanese troops attacked the coastal areas of China where many of the American flyers had landed. These Japanese troops slaughtered every man, woman, and child in those areas. Let me repeat. These Japanese troops slaughtered every man, woman, and child in those areas. Lieutenant General Stilwell received his first report of the destruction in October, 
after his aides visited the region. He blamed Chiang Kai-shek for what he viewed as cowardice on the part of Chinese forces, as he wrote in his diary. It was even worse than we thought. A bitched-up action at Chu Su-sien, buggered completely by the Generalissimo, and then orders to retreat, which were thoroughly carried out. The reconquest was merely reoccupation after the Japs had gone, allowing plenty of time to make sure. Chanel noted the Japanese had so thoroughly wrecked the airfields at Chuchao, Yushan, and Yishui that it would have been easier just to build new ones than rather repair them. Entire villages through which the raiders had passed were slaughtered to the last child and burned to the ground. One sizable city was raised for no other reason than that the sentiment displayed by its citizens in filling up Jap bomb craters on a nearby airfield. The Chinese paid a terrible price for the Doolittle raid, but they never complained. The slaughter drew a bit of notice from the American media in the spring of 1943, as missionaries who had witnessed the atrocities returned home. The New York Times read, The Japanese have chosen how they want to represent themselves to the world. The Los Angeles Times wrote, We shall take them at their own valuation, on their own showing, we shall not forget, and we shall see that penalty is paid. To those that say these slayings were motivated by cowardice as well as savagery is to say the obvious. The Nippon warlords have thus proved themselves to be made of the basest metal, and offer considerable evidence that the Japanese race is subhuman. It would be unfair to the lower animals to call it bestial. It might even be libilious, to hell, to call it demonic. I would like to take this time to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. So please, go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, if you're still hungry after all that for some more Pacific War content, please go check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel over at YouTube, where it'll mean a lot to me. An estimated 250,000 people perished during Operation Sego, and many fell victim to the atrocities performed by Unit 731 during their horror experiments. The price of the Doolittle Raid was felt most by the common people of China, the Japanese objective of reducing Chinese air power was complete, and the horror seen in places like Nanchang would continue to occur till the end of the war.